Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You can no longer have these closed information systems and expect the public anywhere in the world to just salute and go, well, of course you're right. That era has ended and intelligence has a role to play in building what the new era will be. Intelligence itself is it's intangible. It's, uh, it's a process of understanding something more completely than you did before. You know, it's not about predicting something that's going to happen or it's not about, you know, fighting the one weakness in a, you know, in an adversary that will take them down. I think it's more about equipping leaders across the government and the military with, um, you know, a set of tools they can use to make better decisions on emergent problems that we can't predict. I think that you can specialize on secrets, but I think over time, if you do that, you're going to become much smaller. And whether you realize it or not, you're going to become less relevant. Finding a source in the economics ministry that can tell us what next year's GDP is going to be, that's no longer necessary, it's no longer valuable, and it's a huge waste of time. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by the National Security College at the ANU. It is produced by yours truly with support from our friends at policyforum.net. Those comments you just heard were made by Carmen Medina and Zachary Tyson-Brown. And in this episode, Catherine Manstead is speaking to Carmen and Zach about the modernisation of intelligence collection, analysis and distribution. Carmen Medina is a former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence with 32 years' experience in the intelligence community. She is also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Zach Tyson-Brown is a National Security Fellow at the Truman National Security Project and founder of Consilient Strategies. A recent graduate of the National Intelligence University, Zach previously served in the US Army and Department of Defense as an intelligence analyst and an advisor, as well as an instructor of intelligence tradecraft. Carmen and Zach spoke to Catherine Manstead, the National Security College's Senior Advisor for Public Policy, about the future of intelligence and the modernization of tradecraft. Let's listen in to that discussion right now. G'day, Carmen. G'day, Zach. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Hello and howdy. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Look, our pleasure. Um, So today we're going to talk all things intelligence and national security. And I thought, mostly for my indulgence, I wanted to start off with a seemingly simple question, Um, but who knows where it will go. And I'll start with you, Carmen, and then go to you, Zach. What exactly is intelligence? That is a uh, simple question and yet not so simple. Uh, I think intelligence 
has for a long time had this definition associated with secrecy, secrecy, clandestine forms of collecting information. I think the last time I looked at the National Security Act of 1947 or 48, which is what established the structure in the U.S. and the beginnings of the intelligence community, I actually don't think the word secrets apply uh, or appear that often, if at all. It's more about becoming a central area where all this information is put together. So whereas traditionally people think of intelligence as the secret collection of information that others don't want us to have, uh, I think that's an outdated definition. And I think intelligence, I, I guess the default synonym I use now is sense-making. Intelligence is the process by which you try to make sense of reality as best as best you can. Zach, I might bring you in here and rephrase the question a little bit, particularly picking up on Carmen's point about sense making, because I know you have some very interesting views on how we make sense of of the world and how we perceive it. So I asked Carmen what intelligence is. Can I ask you what is good intelligence? Oh. Well, that's, that's, I think that's just as hard to define. Um, first of all, I agree with everything Carmen said, naturally. Uh, secondly, good intelligence, really, I mean, it's anything that allows a better decision to be made, quite frankly. Um, I don't think intelligence is uh, synonymous with secrecy. I don't believe it's a product that you can produce. It's not, you know, the slide deck or the, the secret report, the white paper. It's not even the the overhead surveillance, you know, satellite photograph, you know, that's what you always see in the, in the movies and the TV shows. I don't think any of those things are, are intelligence. They are methods of delivering intelligence, but intelligence itself is, it's intangible. It's a, it's a process of understanding something more completely than you did before. And I'll say, you know, a couple of definitions that I really like, uh, Greg Treverton, who is the former National Intelligence Council chairperson here in the States, uh, he once said that intelligence is storytelling. And I really like that. It's it's making sense of a messy world and putting it into a story that a decision maker, a policymaker, a military commander can understand and then use that to make a better decision. And the other one I would add is uh, Robert Cardillo, who has worked at our ODNI for several years and also was the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Uh, he said that intelligence officers are coherence control officers. And I really like that because you know they make an incoherent world more coherent for people who have to make decisions. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, intelligence is storytelling. But And before we get into some media questions, which I, I want to do shortly, can I just pull you up on one thing there? If you're telling a story, that implies a lot of choice, choice about the plot, the characters, the tension, how that's resolved, um, and therefore choice about what's excluded from field of vision. How do you do that in a way that uh, is not biased in a way that actually helps people make a better decision because story to me implies some level of construction and some level of imposing your views and perceptions onto um, otherwise potentially unbiased information. So, Catherine, if I can answer that by telling a story. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, when I was a senior analytic 
director at CIA. We, of course, produced the president's daily brief, and our customers would tell us that they weren't satisfied with it, that it was not insightful enough. And uh, I would talk to classes of analysts, and I would say, uh, tell me what you're thinking. I would, I would share this uh, criticism with them, and then they would ask me to define what insight is. And I thought, oh, now that's a very good question. What is insight? And so I got to thinking, and then I asked them in turn, well, what's your thinking method? And most of them couldn't actually tell me how they thought. What, 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 you know, they would say, well, I read and then I write. And then I would go, well, there's got to be something in the middle there that we would call thinking. The reason why I tell this story is that I believe, but, so I spent some time trying to break down what the process of thinking and analysis is. And I've decided that the first step in analysis, in telling a story, after you've read, you know, become familiar with all the material, is that you categorize it. You put things into categories. I believe that is the essential building block of analysis. And your question was, how can you make that free of bias? And my answer would be, you can't. You can have processes that minimize the possibility of bias, but that process or the, that method that you have for categorizing information as you receive it always represents what your previous ways of thinking about the subject were. No, that makes my heart sore, um, Carmen, because I think that's a really good point. Can I add? Can I add on to that just for a, a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, you know, I, I never worked at CIA, unlike Carmen, uh, and I was, you know, I never rose to the to the high levels that she did either. I was, I was always just a, you know, a line analyst is what we would say. You know, I worked my goal and I, I read stuff and wrote stuff when I was an intel analyst. Um, but you know, I, I did benefit from some some training that CIA offers, and one of the trainings that they give analysts is to write in a way, um, there's a mimetic they use called AIMS. And the AIMS mimetic is audience, issue, message, and the S stands for storyline. So when you're trying to write like an intelligence analyst, you know, when you're telling the story, you have to determine first, you know, who is your audience? Who are you writing this for? Who are you telling the story to? Is it a, you know, a military commander who has, has troops in Afghanistan, for instance, uh, or, you know, is it a, a deputy undersecretary who's working a, a thorny political issue, perhaps? Um, the issues they have, the I, that's the problems that they're dealing with. The message is that sort of uh, that key takeaway or the insight, to use Carmen's term, that you want them to have. And then the storyline is how you present it to them. I mean, human beings are, we've evolved to understand everything in the terms of storytelling. And I think we, we neglect that uh to our, to our error. You know, that's an error to neglect it. To try to frame things in a way where, you know, I'm just going to present you with a piece of data without any context or storyline behind it. Either you're not going, either you're going to accept it or you're not based on perhaps your own preconceptions. But I have to tell you it in such a way that engages you uh, as a storyteller. And that, I think that's the point of intelligence being storytelling. That's fantastic. And I think you're 
picking up there or echoing, you know, a number of people who've said that humans are at our essence storytelling creatures. I know that Yuval Harari in Sapiens, for instance, spends a great deal of the book making that case. Um, so if I was then to, to draw you out on one particular story, let's look at the story of the future of intelligence. And let me ask you, and this time I might start with Zach, um, if you are sitting down and you are designing the future intelligence architecture, whether that's of the US or any country, and you've got finite resources and you've got to make a choice, do you optimise the system towards stealing um, the secrets of, of leaders in other countries and protecting your uh, most sensitive secret information? Or do you spend your finite resources towards optimising um, for collecting and analysing and indeed making sense of the huge amount of information that exists in our information abundant world today? Where do you prioritise and what do you give up doing? Well, I think that's the big question. That's what every intelligence community around the world is going to have to deal with uh, on its own terms in the years to come. So, you know, there are those who would say in the American intelligence community, and I'm sure in the Australian intelligence community as well, that, you know, what we're really good at is gathering secrets. And that's where we should invest all of our money and our resources in finding that really hard to get information that no one else can. Uh, and that's a very, that's a valid argument. And there's a, there's a lot of weight behind that argument. I think that the, the challenge to that argument is we've focused entirely on that for the last 75, even 100 years, if you want to call it that, to the exclusion of all this other information that's grown up in the world since then. I mean, since the, you know, if you want to call it the information revolution began and whether you put it in the 60s or 70s, um, lately in the last couple of decades, that's began to burge into a level where the amount of information that is freely available out there to anyone is at least on par with, if not in excess of what previously only governments could get through these niche collection capabilities. So, you know, for me, uh, I think the biggest problem that policymakers and even military commanders have today is making sense of all that data that's out there in the world and all that sort of messy, incoherent that I said, um, all those other stories that are out there. So I think that you know any nation's intelligence community should begin to focus more on making sense of all that data that's out there and helping its users to understand the world in a way where they can, you know, it's not about predicting something that's going to happen. Or it's not about, you know, finding the one weakness in a, you know, in an adversary that will take them down. I think it's more about equipping leaders across the government and the military with, um, you know, a set of tools they can use to make better decisions on emergent problems that we can't predict. Uh, take, you know, a great example would be the coronavirus. I mean, even though if you say, you know, we did, we did say that, yes, a pandemic will come. And the IC would say, you know, we predicted this a long time ago, but you couldn't predict exactly when it would occur. And it's hard for governments to sort of build that into the budgets they make, um, you know, because you can't, it's, it's hard to justify spending money on something that hasn't happened yet. I think if we equip leaders with the ability to understand the complexity and the emergence and the messiness of the world um, by facilitating that sort of sense making, I think that is a ultimately a better investment of our resources than trying to collect secrets to predict something uh, that may or may not occur. Carmen, can I bring you in here? Because I think it's a really interesting point Zach made at the end 
of his comments there around, you know, we could say that a pandemic was coming, but it's very difficult to say when and also to motivate political action based on um, that sort of intelligence. Can I ask you from the perspective of culture, if you're a politician or a decision maker and you receive something that's stamped top secret, is there a certain level of cachet or, or cultural value that's put on that versus uh, interpretation of an open source feed? And if there is a difference, um, what type of work needs to be done, if at all, to emphasise the value of both secret and open source information to decision makers? I think the first time a neophyte policymaker receives a few messages with the top secret label on them, he or she are impressed. But I think that ends pretty quickly. And often, uh, particularly things that are categorized top secret, just to hone in on that category, are sharp little shards of secretly collected information that can be arcane and frankly lack a lot of context. The collection officer markets those messages around town like they're the crown jewels. And of course, that's what he or she thinks. But the reality is that if you ask any of these officers who take these top secret morsels of information around town, because Often they have to be hand-carried, at least in the the Washington area. And you talk to any policymaker, a lot of those envelopes are never opened. And that's the reality because they've, they've, over time they learn, I'm going to read some accounts or some obscure meeting on some obscure topic that may or may not have anything to do with my agenda today. And I don't have the 10 minutes to spare. You used the phrase open source feed. And I don't know if you meant that, but that sort of conjures up an old-fashioned picture of what open source is. Open source isn't uh, like a a ticker of running stories. I mean, it can be, but that's not really what's going to bring value to policymakers. Open source exploitation or or an understanding of the world as revealed through open sources will be the product of some really interesting research and interrogation of the data that will reveal to you something that may not have been obvious by just reading news stories, but is equally interesting, in fact, more interesting than secret collection. Yeah, I would I would definitely uh, reiterate that point and say that you know the value of open source is I mean there's lots there's it's manifold but the, one of the values is we have access now to everywhere on Earth you know there's a sensor in every person's hand everywhere on the planet and they're all freely for the most part uh, uploading images text sound you know gl- clips and bits from their daily lives. We're getting more news from more sources than ever before, too much actually. Um, and we, you know, we've never had the ability to have sources placed in all these places on the planet ever in the intelligence community's history. So if you look at you know, classified collection sources, um, whether it is 
you know, a, a spy satellite that flies over a part of the planet, you know, once a day or whatever, uh, to a, you know, a very, high, a very highly placed clandestine human intelligence source in a foreign agency. Um, they, ha they have a very limited scope of what they can see and what they can gather. Now we have so many sensors all around the world that it would be foolish to not take advantage of all of that placement and access to use an intelligence term. I, I want to, if I may, just share another story, Catherine. This was like my aha moment 20 years ago when I realized that the intelligence community was totally missing the potential of open source research to answer our hardest questions. And I was reading a book, it's called The Hitler Myth. And it's written by a historian, maybe Ian Baruma. Your, your listeners can look it up. And in that book, he's a historian, and he's trying to determine whether all these myths about Hitler are true or not. You know, various sort of stories that people tell about his prowess and his abilities. And one of the myths he tackles is that the Germans supported Hitler until the bitter end at the end of World War II, despite all the destruction. So he, he provides the following account. In 1939, the obituaries of dead soldiers in a Munich newspaper, like 100% of the time, would say that the soldier died for their Fuhrer. The soldier would have died for das Volk, their Vaterland, their Fuhrer. In 1944, when the government made it mandatory for all obituaries to say that the soldier died for the Fuhrer, the percentage of obituaries that voluntarily provided that description had dropped to single digits. When I read that, it's like the scales fell from my eyes and I went, oh my God, that is a question that policymakers would have spent millions of dollars, billions of dollars to try to answer, like, you know, Putin, do the people really support Putin? And we would go, you know, through all sorts of crazy collection methods to try to answer it. And there's not a snowball's chance in hell that any intelligence officer would have thought of what this historian thought of. And I thought there is something fundamentally wrong with our approach to trying to make sense of the world. And from that moment on, I've been absolutely convicted that we have to have a different approach. That's a fan, uh, fantastic vignette. And Zach, you're, you're putting your, you're looking seriously at me. So I'll let you add something else in there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, I, I figured out how to use the, the raise hand feature on this. Um, so two points to, to, to follow up on what Carmen said. Um, you know, earlier we talked about storytelling and narrative and the problem of, you know, uh, point of view and bias. Well, I would say that, you know, when we rely on sources, you know, classified sources, that in itself has a particular point of view and an inherent bias that's in it. And analysts are trained to evaluate those and figure out, you know, a, a human intelligence source, for instance, obviously has a bias. They're working against, you know, whatever whatever country it is for some reason or another. Even a even something that you would think is a technical asset, like a you know like an ability to listen into you know a radio broadcast or something from a foreign adversary, 
um, you know, we're pointing it at that adversary for a reason. You know, we're expecting to find things from that adversary because we feel like they're an important threat that we need to learn more about. That itself, that's that's a um, that's there's a there's a bit of point of view there. We're we're already inserting ourselves into the narrative. So my I was thinking as Carmen was talking about this that by relying more on ubiquitous sources that are everywhere, you know, we can get a more unbiased view of what's going on in the world. And perhaps a, a, a view that is closer to, you know, what we might call reality, such as it exists. Um, and then the other point I was going to say was, you know, in terms of collection, classified collection resources, we have to plan those out for, you know, sometimes years ahead of time, if it's in case of like a, you know, a, a space system that has to be launched in the orbit. Um, and we have to plan what it is we're going to collect for, what we think is important, you know, where that particular satellite needs to fly over, all these sorts of things. So, you know, we're not prepared to respond to rapidly emerging unpredictable crises and problems that an open source view would, uh, would, would allow us to be more adaptable, I think. That's very interesting. I think, though, Zach, maybe what, what you're surfacing there is that um, whether we choose to look at the big picture open source collective intelligence versus the kind of secret squirrel uh, machinations behind closed doors, might that not too depend on our view on where we think the sources of or the causes of world events and the sources of changes and trends are, whether we subscribe to, and of course I'm painting this as a binary, it doesn't have to be, but whether we subscribe to the great man theory of or great woman theory of, of world politics, which suggests that um, the people, the leaders behind closed doors have an outsized uh, effect on world events, or if we take a more kind of uh, depersonalized view that says there are forces in society, in geography, in climate uh, that drive world events uh, that are more depersonalized, uh, and that we should be focusing on them, not um, what individuals may be doing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that you know historically we are very bad at predicting you know, what the next major challenge is going to be or or even what the next major war is going to be. Um, and I know that, you know, right now we're all very concerned about, you know, the rise of China and uh, in a revanchist Russia, as we should be. Um, but, you know, if, if we use history as a guide, you know, that will tell us that we're not going to be able to predict where the next major conflict is going to arise and we're, we're likely to be surprised by it. Um, so we don't have a very good track record of getting these things right. You know, I always, someone told me once, and it's always stuck with me that, you know, we when we look for things, we tend to find the things we're looking for, and we're often surprised when the things we're not looking for find us instead. So, in terms of intelligence collection, we can find evidence of you know Russia and Chinese malfeasance all day long, but then when something occurs that we weren't looking for, that's what surprises us, and that's when you get you know what some people would call intelligence failure. I think that's a good point for us to stop for a quick break as we think about how, uh, how, how meagre the human mind can sometimes be and have a, have a short pause of existential fear. So we'll come back after this break. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So we are here on the National Security Podcast with uh, Carmen and Zach, two experts uh, in intelligence from uh, the United States. And we're talking about the way in which information abundance and transparency is affecting the intelligence business. And I should add as well that both of you recently wrote a fantastic article on the very subject we're talking about in foreign affairs. And I just want to read out a sentence from that article because I think it really captures what we've just been talking about on the other side of the break. So you start the article by talking about the way in which during the Cold War, uh, the business of intelligence was very much focused on stealing secrets and protecting secrets. Uh, And then you say this closed intelligence architecture that grew up during the Cold War has become an impediment to the timely communication of information. And that in an era of abundant data, uh, rapid change and novel threats to American interests, the frictionless communication of ideas and facts is arguably more important than protecting the tools used to gather them. And so I want to ask you two things based on that. The first is that whenever we see intelligence heads poke their head above the parapets, one of the most common things that they might say is that they can't talk more about this subject because they're protecting sensitive sources and methods. And I want to ask you both, even when, when whether we're dealing in a world of secrecy or whether we're dealing in a world of analysing uh, information that's available more broadly, surely sources and particularly methods are still important. So surely there still is a need for some level of secrecy, some level of protection. And where do you draw that line? Where do you make that balance? That's part one of my question. Part two of my question is this. If we live in more of a transparent, open world where, and as in your article, you point out there's a lot of private sector firms that are doing intelligence and doing it well and doing it in a timely fashion, whether we're talking about um, Bellingcat or McKinsey, should government intelligence agencies be playing that game or should they maybe cede the ground to private sector actors and specialise and find their competitive advantage in that more secret space and leave the interpretation and analysis of the open source uh, to the entities that seem to be doing it a bit better and with some of the fewer sensitivities and restrictions that a government might be able to. Uh, Carmen, I'll, I'll throw that giant sure, yeah. well, morass of are, questions your way. Those are valid issues. Uh, there are some sources and methods that are intended to remain secret that have to remain secret because once they become exposed, you can't use them again. And depending upon the um, seriousness of the threat or the longevity of the topic, you'll have to decide that uh, I'm going to protect those sources and methods as long as I possibly can. 
but I would suggest that there there are fewer of those than we uh, that, that the national security establishment assumes. And and then I and I and I want to say one other thing on the sources and methods point because it's it struck me that intelligence organizations really still stress, well, I don't want anybody else to know what I'm thinking about. I don't want the Chinese to know how I view them. And I've gotten, I've gotten ornery, I guess, in my old age, but I'm beginning to question that assumption. What really leads to a more peaceful world? If everybody knows, I'm exaggerating here, but if we all have transparency about each other, or if we're keeping secrecies from secrets from each other and therefore heighten the chances of miscalculations. I, I'm beginning to think that particularly in the world that we're living in today, that being open and transparent about what we know about each other might contribute to more stability than trying to maintain secrets. I've just, I've just kind of had this epiphany, so don't hold me to it. Uh, I st- I'm still evaluating it, but I-, I-, I do wonder whether or not we haven't actually uh, are relying on an assumption that is no longer valid. Carmen, as a, as a, as a fan of um, national security and literature crossovers, uh, yeah. I wonder if the answer to your question here might be to watch some good British comedy of manners, uh, TV or movies, um, where in the uh, desire to keep secrets is always what leads, drives the tension in the plot and a few good murders in the library or the parlour. <laughs> so I wonder if we can draw uh, exactly. some, some analogies right. there to yeah. answer your question. You know, as China emerges... What's the best strategy for the U.S.? We want them, do we want China to be mystified about what the U.S. thinks about them? Or do we want China to have sort of a clear view about what the U.S. thinks of them? Which is really the better road to take. On specialization, should the government specialize on uh, secrets and not engage in open source? It's, It's actually headed that way by default, given what the government is uh, not doing, not taking open source research methods more seriously. I just had a call today with an open source sort of data as a service company, and they just you know, kind of blew my mind as to all the things that they're doing. And I asked them actually, do you find yourself competing with intelligence services? And they said, not really, because they're not doing what we're doing. And so I think that you can specialize on secrets, but I think over time, if you do that, you're going to become much smaller, which is okay. Save, save government's money. And whether you realize it or not, you're going to become less relevant. So I, I feel that the open source, well, put it another way, I feel that the sense-making job in the world is so hard that there's plenty for everyone to do. And uh, so there's, and, and there's plenty, uh, there's lots of good reasons why duplication, a little duplication might be a good thing. Zach, can I ask you something here that I've been burning to ask you? So you mentioned a bit earlier about how we have ubiquitous sensing now um, 
you know, all of us are carrying a mobile phone, a beautiful spying device in our pocket. And we're talking about the fact that industry and the private sector can do a lot of open source collection and analysis. And then government can potentially piggyback off that or do its own thing. Where does this leave us from an ethical perspective? I mean, you don't need to look hard. If you open a newspaper, um, if that's a thing people do these days, you see a lot of stories uh, about some of these ethical quandaries. I just saw on Vice earlier today that there is a GPS company offering to sell 15 billion um, pieces of information about the location of cars to the US government here in Australia and elsewhere in the world. We had a scandal when Clearview AI, a um, facial recognition company, was doing uh, business with the Australian government. Clearview AI um, is a company that scrapes data from the internet, billions of pictures of people's faces, applies machine learning to it and can help you recognise people's faces from a photo. Where do we draw the line between saying, hey, this open source monitoring um, analysis thing is good versus, oops, we're all living in the matrix and we don't live in a corporate surveillance internet world anymore. We now live in a ubiquitous surveillance state where everything is under the microscope. Man, that is a great question and I do not know the answer. Um, I will offer, though, that, you know, it is a it is a brave new world. I think that, um, you know, I think the definition and people's expectations of privacy are changing. And it's a there's a generational change. I mean, if you, you know, I'm 40 uh, people younger than me, you know, you know Gen, Gen Z, um, you know, they don't seem to be as concerned about privacy as people older than me are. And I think that that's going to be a trend over time that continues as we get more ubiquitous devices, as we go into 5G and 6G, and really every part of our lives is spent online. Um, is that right or wrong? I don't know the answer to that. I am concerned about it. I think that you know there are all of these private sector companies that are not just American or Australian or, or European countries. There are companies. There are you know, there are plenty of Chinese companies. There are plenty of other com- companies out there in the world, multinational corporations whose loyalties are not particularly to any single state. They are truly global uh, in their scope. And they are already gathering this data, as you pointed out, and they are often willing to sell it to whoever wants to purchase it. And I know for, you know, for a fact that other adversarial nations are purchasing data and they're using it to their advantage. So I feel like it's... Um, it is troubling that we're not using it to the same extent. Now, obviously, you know, I'm as concerned about civil rights and, pre- and privacy as, as the next person. Um, but I do think we have to come to terms in you know, liberal democratic countries. How can we both protect people's privacy with you know, laws like GDPR and the European Union uh, and still take advantage of all the ubiquitous data that's out there in the world? And I don't think anyone has come up with a good answer for that yet. But it is, it is probably the central question uh, of, of at least the first half of the 21st century. And you make a fantastic point that adversaries are using this data, which points up perhaps the importance of privacy as a national security issue because a little bit more privacy would help us navigate ethical quandaries, but it also might protect um, valuable personal information uh, from being caught up in the espionage nets of corporations and foreign governments. Yeah, so I just had another thought uh, just kind of randomly that um, – you know the um, you know the United States and the United Kingdom and all the Five Eyes countries really. Um, we've had an incredible advantage over the rest of the world since at least the end of World War II, and that was because of you know the 
the information architecture that was built into um, you know, operating out of London and New York and, and other places around the world with, with cables and being able to use passive collection to really gather up a lot of signals intelligence. And that's really the, the biggest thing that came out of World War II was the UK-US Signals Intelligence Alliance, right? And so we've used that capability for you know, three quarters of a century now uh, and gotten lots of great insight and, and information about that from that. Now what's happening, I think, is the playing field there is sort of leveling uh, not only as other countries are able to take advantage of commercial data that is on, on bid to the highest bidder, uh, but also other countries like, you know, China, obviously, is building out its own uh, digital infrastructure and, and, you know, laying those cables all around the world where it can enjoy a lot of signals intelligence collection benefits, too. So, you know, I think that that is almost a, you know, to use a, a cybersecure, a, a digital term, a, a burning platform. You know, we have reliance on, you know, this signals intelligence architecture that we inherited from World War II and have spent lots and lots of money building up over the decades. Um, but, you know, as the as time goes on, I think it's going to be less and less of an advantage that we have uh, comparatively to our to our potential adversaries. I just want to shift gear a little bit here. So we're talking about the way in which we live in a ubiquitous sensing world where there's a lot of information available and we need to take advantage of that information in order to make sense of the world. Talking about another aspect of the intelligence world, human intelligence now, I want to – so one of the, the more interesting speeches by a intelligence head in recent years was um, the former head of um, CIS in the UK, MI6, Alex Younger, uh, gave a speech which he called the fourth generation espionage speech. And he spoke about the difficulties of conducting covert um, intelligence operations in our digital age. So he says, the digital era has profoundly changed our operating environment Bulk data plus modern analytics make the modern world transparent. And he gave an example, of course, of the UK's ability to out Russia's GRU over the Salisbury attack in the UK um, because it was almost impossible for those agents to to conduct that operation without being picked up um, by various CCTV cameras, leaving a trail of digital breadcrumbs behind them. Um, but then he also points out that this is a serious challenge for those um, in, in the Five Eyes community who want to do um, human intelligence. Where do you see this trend going? Are we heading more towards a signals intelligence only age or an open source intelligence only age? Is and as well, I mean, is the risk of doing human intelligence these days not just only to personal safety but also to reputation if and when you get sprung, is that outweighing some of the benefits of doing that? I think the era of human is narrowing. I'm not going to say it's coming to a close because I think that we will always value a source that can give us insight, direct insight into the thinking of a senior leader of, of an adversary. I think that's always going to be something important. It's always going to be aspirational too, because those things are really hard to get. But I think the uh, era of using human to gather all sorts of information, you know, finding a source in the economics ministry that can tell us what next year's GDP is going to be, 
that that's no longer necessary. It's no longer valuable, and it's a huge waste of time. So I think Humint is in fact going to be a niche business, and the human tiers don't want to hear that. I know from my friends who were uh, clandestine operators at CIA that they really sincerely believe that all U.S. foreign policy revolved around Humint, uh, and it was always. Uh, uh, a sad moment to witness when they realized that maybe it did not. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would reiterate those comments. And you know, just uh, I was trying to remember what the article was, but I, I remember just in December there was an article on at Foreign Policy magazine about um, how the Chinese had used stolen data to expose CIA operatives in Africa and Europe and basically mm. them. And, you know, CIA lost a lot of their, their resources in that episode. There was, there's been other articles over the, uh, recently in the last couple of years about the, you know, called the, the you know, spycraft revolution or the end of secrecy. I think that's a real challenge because, you know, all these sensors that are out there in people's hands and increasingly on, you know, street corners and in buildings and look cameras everywhere um, it's going to be increasingly challenging for, you know, a human intelligence asset to pretend to be someone they're not or to be in the place where they're not supposed to be. Um, so I think that's very challenging to our traditional conception of, you know, what is spycraft and what is spying. And, and on the signals intelligence side, you know, the, you know, since the end of World War II, I mean, it's been the, they call it the golden age of signals intelligence. But I think that, that, that area of competition itself is also, as I as I alluded to, going to get much more competitive, much messier going forward. And there's not going to be any single, um, you know, uh, country or set of countries that have dominance over it like in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting to recall it was only oh, 10 or 15 years ago that the NSA uh, was saying that the fact that the bulk of the internet infrastructure travelled through the US gave the US a home field advantage in signals intelligence. And I think you're absolutely right. That home field advantage has rapidly dissipated, if not levelled out. So it's an interesting space to watch how that evolves. Look, I know we're getting to the end of our time together. So I just want to ask two more things. One, substance and, and one a bit more personal to you both. Um, we've been t- talking a lot about intelligence as empowering decision and decision making and helping people to make sense of the world. Uh, and I w- want to draw you both on who you think intelligence is for, who you think um, the intelligence agencies of any particular government are working for, the, for the government or the people. And to put an even finer point on that I think it's really interesting and I'm sure you would have come across and it's been going wild on Twitter uh, the recent uh, or at least my Twitter um, the recent document put out by um, the Director of National Intelligence in the US um, the summation of 2020 US federal election influence um, a, a fascinating um, assessment or, or collation of assessments by the U.S. intelligence community on influence efforts during 2020 against U.S. interests and also p- particularly against the U.S. election. And and that document is quite striking to me because obviously the target there or the audience there is the American people, perhaps um, more so than the decision makers within government. Where do you see that kind of trend going? Do you see that there is more need for intelligence agencies to share with their own citizens, to share with business, to share with nonprofit, to inform those decision-making um, calculuses as well as just the executive? 
Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Done. Let's move yes. on. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, people say that the internet has ruin things for expertise and elites. And I take issue with that. It's not the internet that has made things harder for experts and elites. It's the failure of experts and elites to recognize how the internet was changing the information age that's ruined their credibility. The intelligence community has a part to play in helping to turn around this truth decay that we have across the world, this distrust of information. Does intelligence have the biggest part to play? No, but it nevertheless does have a useful part to play. And I think that the intelligence community, while it will always be serving policymakers, also has to step up perhaps in uh, collaboration with private industry and nonprofits, and provide more useful information to the American public, to the world public, about how to make sense of the world. Imagine if such a platform that I'm existing, that I'm describing rather vaguely, but imagine if something like that had existed when COVID broke out a year ago, and, and people had confidence that this platform was a place to go to for serious, uh, quality information on the COVID issue. It, it might have helped and might have prevented some of the distrust that we're experiencing today. So I do think that you can no longer have these closed information systems and expect the public anywhere in the world to just salute and go, well, of course you're right. That era has ended and intelligence has a role to play in building what the new era will be. That is a fantastic point. Zach, do you have anything to add to that? I think it's, I mean, just from someone who sits inside a university, we often reflect about the death of expertise um, here. And I think it's fascinating and important to reflect on the role in which experts have in uh, redressing the death of expertise just as much as the public does. When we seem to often levy um, accusations towards the public of just not caring enough, perhaps it's also about how we communicate as the so-called experts. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that, um, well, it's almost a tangent, but I think to your to your last point, um, you know, many experts in, in both academia and in the intelligence community um, often speak and write for other experts and other intelligence officers. So, you know, we like to argue, you know, proverbially about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, right? Uh, <laughs> or I think we have to recognize coming back to our first question about it's about storytelling and about how we talk to the general public. You know, those are the people who ultimately are the stakeholders in everything we do, whether it is in, um, you know, the, the, in academia or in government. Uh, in terms of who intelligence is for, I, I do think it is for ultimately everyone. Um, and this idea that, you know, we sort of got in the, you know, in the last century that the, you know, in the United States, the president is the ultimate authority, the ultimate decision maker. And he's the CIA would call the president the first customer. Um, that is a that is an older model of policymaking, I think, that sort of sees this hierarchical top down command structure where information flows up to the top and a decision is made promulgated back down through the through all different you know, paths. Um, I think now, you know, because of all the challenges we've been talking about, people everywhere at every level of the system 
have much more agency and expect to have much more influence and input into any decision that is made. And I mean, for, you know, to be honest, the president has never been, you know, the only policymaker or has ma ever made policy by fiat. Uh, it's always, you know, policy options bubble up from sort of the middle layer of the bureaucracy and go into, you know, what we call the, the deputies meeting and the principals meetings and through the National Security Council, right? I think it, at a very minimum, we have to retool intelligence to support um, people across the executive branch and government to facilitate their understanding of the world. And then there's also a role, as Carmen mentioned, of being truth tellers to the public writ large and helping to be those sort of coherence control officers to bring it back to the to the beginning. Which is funny because I think it proves that there's nothing new under the sun because if you go back to writing in foreign affairs, for instance, um, in the 1990s as we were first grappling with our information age, I think you'd find people like Joe Nye and others saying that perhaps America's advantage in this information age will be our ability to be truth tellers, will it be our ability to uh, penetrate the opaque with transparency and, and make people um, able to believe and trust us. So interesting that even as we have these conversations now, and, and think we're being new and edgy, perhaps these conversations have been ever thus. What I do want to uh, bring you in now is a question, our final question that we ask all of our uh, guests on the National Security Podcast, and that is to share with our listeners uh, something that has really shaped your view of the world and, and shaped uh, your career trajectory perhaps. So a book, a movie, even a particular moment or an event, something that's been really powerful and influential uh, for you both. And I might start with Zach and then give Carmen the final word uh, on this question. Oh, wow. That is such a, such a good question. And I, you know, I have to admit, I was, I was looking at my bookshelf to try to think of one book that had, you know, such an influence on me. And I could name a bunch of them. But uh, I think for me, in terms of a moment, it was it was probably the, the terrorist attacks on 9-11. I mean, I was, you know, I was 21 at the time. Uh, I had nothing to do with national security or government or the military. I joined the army because of that, uh, you know, about a year later. Um, and that sort of, you know, <laughs> That changed the entire trajectory of my life. And over the years, I've kind of come to understand it as a, and I use it often as a symbol of all the things that's animated the stuff that I write about too, in terms of national security reform and intelligence community reform. I mean, it's, it's if you think about it, it's the, it demonstrates the sheer connectedness and the shrinking of the world, you know, the, the evaporation of sort of, you know, the American tradition of having two oceans that protected us from, you know, foreign interference. Um, it also, you know, revealed the inadequacies, I think, of our of our Cold War era defense and intelligence architectures. So, you know, that was kind of my introduction into adulthood. And I think I've obsessed over all those issues that were shown by it, not just in terms of, you know, counterterrorism or anti-terrorism, even though that's still a very important mission. Um, I think just the it was a symbol to me of the fact that our institutions and the way we thought about national security needs to change. I didn't know that, of course, at the time. But it, it probably changed the arc and the trajectory of my life. Carmen? Uh, mine will sound more trivial, but uh, there was a movie that I saw. Uh, it's an old movie. It's called The Americanization of Emily. Are you familiar with that movie? It's with, I'm familiar with Emily in Paris, uh, but no, that sounds very different to what you're talking about. <laughs> from 1963 with uh, Julie Andrews just breaking out in her career and James Garner, 
And the script was by Patty Chayefsky. If in, in your listeners know, he's one of the greatest political script writers mm. in American movie making. It's a story of World War II, where James Gardner plays this Navy officer who has succeeded and not seen any combat. Julie Andrews plays the widow of a brave RAF pilot. And it's a battle between his cynicism and her patriotism. And the person that he works for, his boss, the Admiral, James Gardner's boss, wants the wants for budgetary reasons the first dead man on Omaha Beach to be a Navy man. And that just opened my eyes about the politics of uh, the military and national security. And I saw that when I was quite young and uh, the cynicism of a lot of what goes on. So that's, uh, if you haven't seen that movie, I strongly recommend it. Thank you very much both. We are absolutely privileged to have had you on the podcast with us. Um, and not only have you stretched my mind in all sorts of ways about national security and intelligence and the future and the past thereof, but Carmen, you've also given me my weekend movie activity. So I couldn't have asked for anything more um, from both of you um, on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing some incredibly candid and perceptive insights with us. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. And a big thanks to Carmen and Zach for talking to us today on the National Security Podcast. You can read more from Carmen at her blog at recoveringfed.com and from Zach at zacharytysonbrown.medium.com. You too can join the conversation by hitting us up on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly using at NatsecPod, or you can go old school by dropping us an email using podcasts at policyforum.net. Don't forget to give us a rating and provide feedback on whatever platform you pod with. We genuinely do listen to your opinions on what we can talk about in future episodes or how we can improve the show in general. On the next episode, we will see another instalment of Security Summit with Roy Medcalf speaking to Mike Goldman, the Chargé d'Affaires at the US Embassy in Australia about the bilateral relationship and regional security under the Biden administration. So thanks very much for listening in, and we will catch you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.